Blog Talk Radio. Well, here we go again. It's another edition of Helping Behaviorally Challenging Students. This is Dr. Ross Green coming to you live from the offices of Lives in the Balance in Portland, Maine. And today is an educators panel day, uh, the day where we have on several principals who are implementing the model described in the explosive child and lost at school um, in their buildings. And um, I'll be happy to bring them onto the air just as soon as they call into the program, which they have not done yet. Um, I know that we will be lacking uh, one of our principals today, Tom Ambrose, who uh, had another commitment that he had to attend to. Uh, we'll see if Nina and uh, Carol call in. We'll see. Just finished a very interesting program um, with uh, some folks from the National Alliance for the Mentally Ill who are advocating against the use of restraint and seclusion in our schools. And I am, of course, interested in seeing if our uh, educators panel members want to weigh in on that, obviously a um, tough issue for schools, especially if a school is... um, uh, using restraint and seclusion frequently, um, what a difficult thing it is to move from relying on those types of strategies to no longer relying on those uh, types of strategies. Um, not easy um, to make that transition, but um, necessary because we can't keep doing that to kids. So if you want to listen to that program, It'll be posted on the homepage of the Lives in the Balance website, um, and uh, on uh, down by the bottom where it says issues in children's mental health. All of the radio programs, the most recent radio program for each of the three that I do, the monthly issues in children's mental health program, the educators program, and the parents program. The most recent program is always posted on the homepage of the Lives in the Balance website. Usually by the next morning, we'll we'll see. They they might get posted quicker than that today. We'll find out. Um, one of our educators panel members have uh, have called in at this point. Carol, how are you today? I'm doing very well. How are you today, Ross? I'm doing very well. I spent uh, let's see three days in your country, though not your province, last week uh, in a in Edmonton, much colder and much snowier than I think it is in your neck of the woods. Um, it was a bit of a culture shock, not the Canada-U.S. thing, because I'm in Canada frequently, but I was not ready for 14 below Celsius Well, that's a warm day. <laughs> with the wind blowing. That's a warm day? Yeah, that's exactly. That's a warm day in Edmonton. <laughs> so so the, the bad news for me is that, um, and I don't really care, it, just, we, we, it hasn't been that cold in Portland, Maine yet this year, so it was a bit of a uh, shock to the system. Um, I'll be in Grand Prairie, Alberta, Ooh. which is even further north Indeed. in uh, January. 
And please don't ask me why I'm doing that. I think it was the only case <laughs> that I could do it, and so we're doing it. That's coming up soon. Um, I think I'm going to bring my warm jacket this time. What do you think? Good idea. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. So I know that Tom is not going to be joining us today because he had another commitment. I'm not exactly sure where Nina is, but okay. um, <laughs> how are things going in your building with with the model these days? Things are really moving along. I have to say, Ross, as you know, this year we um, we decided to move our col- our work with collaborative problem solving into an action research project. Mm-hmm. And by kind of giving it that structure, it's it's keeping it in the forefront and it's helping us to have some momentum into um, being a bit more systematic in our implementation, um, keeping better documentation of the plans that we're putting in place with students so that we can follow up on them more, and even kind of exposing some staff members who really weren't that familiar with it um, to it through things like our school-based team where any time a student is being brought to the school-based team with mainly behavioral concerns, we're using the ALSIP as our as our discussion focus to um, help be less about um, talking about what the student is doing and more about the why and, and how are we going to approach helping them solve those problems. So it's great. And, um, you know, we could talk about that a little bit if we wanted to. I'm always saying, as do my colleagues, um, how important the ALSIP is as the beginning step for putting in place all kinds of important things for behaviorally challenging students. Mm-hmm. But one of the things we are often marveling at, in fact, I was just talking with a colleague on the phone this morning who's um, uh, helping schools implement the model in many, many different schools. And she was commenting on the fact that, it's my colleague Kim, Kim Doheny, um, she was commenting on the fact that, um, you know, it's almost impossible to come out of a meeting in which the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems is being used as a discussion guide without people coming to the recognition that the kid is indeed lacking skills. Right, and what I what I appreciated about it is it, it, it helps to just um, get into that mindset away from blaming the student or blaming the parents because there's nothing on the, the ALSEP that says, you know, parents are former drug users or parents don't follow through with rules at home or the child doesn't, you know, doesn't like me and is trying to get me upset. It really does focus on that objective developmental aspect of these are skills that the student has not yet developed or is having trouble developing and it it moves it to a place of support rather than of of just blaming and wringing our hands and and really abrogating responsibility because i think i'm not sure who said it it may have been you it may have been someone else but um you know it stuck with me for a long time that if we know um something about a student that we can affect and we don't do anything about it it's negligence so if we can identify that students have a particular need to be taught something, whether it's a skill or or uh, a way of thinking about a particular problem, and if we know that and don't act upon it or don't take steps to teach that, then we're being negligent, just as we would be if we knew that students hadn't yet learned to subtract and we just never decided, we said, oh, yeah, they don't know how to subtract, but you know what? Uh, their parents don't teach them at home, so why should I teach them? I mean, that's negligence. We would never do it with an academic skill. Why would we treat, you know, developmental, social, self-regulation skills any differently? Uh, you're, you're, you're not going to get an argument from me on that. 
the other thing I hear is that the identification of unsolved problems and being very specific about them and sticking with the guidelines that I've laid out, that they be free of maladaptive behavior, free of adult theories, split, not clumped, and very specific, is really quite revelatory to many people who are participating in the meetings because they are getting down to the level of analysis of what the problem really is with a the kid. They're moving beyond the challenging behavior. They're moving beyond the diagnosis. They are moving beyond all the bad things that are happening in the kid's life. They are moving beyond the generalities, and they're getting down to the problems that need to be solved so that this student isn't exhibiting challenging behavior about those problems anymore. Are you all finding that in your meetings as well? I think it is. I think in, in, in the past, before we had the ALSEP as our, as our discussion guide, um, we would get bogged down, and I think some of my colleagues who are doing the same work would find the same thing, is that it's, it's easy to get bogged down in the stories because some of those stories you know, have emotional baggage for the adults that experience them. And so sometimes by retelling those stories, um, in the past it was kind of a, you know, well, do you see what I have to live with? And it was kind of like a, a kind of a personal baggage of, of experience with that student because it could be almost traumatizing to the adult working with that child as well. And now the stories may still be told, but with the purpose of just so someone will tell a story about a student and will say, okay, well, does that sound like this skill was causing that behavior to happen? So we can bring it back to that objective because sometimes people still need to um, air or, or share their, their subjective experience with a student. And, and I think it's important not to deny that because, you know, people who work with challenging kids, they're human beings and, and the behavior affects them, and I think there needs to be some kind of a, of a acknowledgement that, um, you know, it has been difficult to work with the student, and and there may have been an effect on the adults as well. And but this way, it's kind of a, it's a it's a bridge to getting from, you know, this is affecting me to now how can I help the student? Um, very important point, and one that I probably should be making more often than I do, but one that came up, the point that you're just making. But one, and by the way, Nina is going to be joining us um, in about five minutes. She's okay. dealing with a situation at school, and of course, <laughs> this is a real-life program, um, and so sometimes principals of schools have issues that they need to settle before they can get on the educators' panel on the first Monday of every month. Yes, but once in a while, <laughs> once in a while. Um, uh, one of the things that I, I just did a program on the issues of children in children's mental health program. Um, with um, some folks from the National Alliance on the Mentally Ill who um, are advocating against the use of restraint and seclusion in schools. And, of course, one of the points that was being made was the impact of those procedures on kids who are on the receiving end of them. Right. And it can be traumatizing. And it can be traumatizing even if you're not the kid who's on the receiving end of the restraint and seclusion, but rather mm-hmm. just the kid who's observing it because it's scary all the way around. Right. One of the things that often gets lost, of course, and one of the things we talked about, is the effect of restraint and seclusion on the adults 
who are the ones who have to be doing it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I was recounting the fact that I used to be one of those adults, but not in schools, uh, very early in my foray into mental health, which, of course, ended up not to be a foray. It stuck. (laughs) um, I used to work. My first experience in the field of mental health was uh, as a psychiatric technician, which is a fancy name for a line staff member, on an inpatient psychiatry adolescent child and adolescent unit. And um, I was just struck by the fact that um, it seemed so normal, sort of everyday practices, if a kid got out of control, that you'd restrain and seclude the kid. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also was recalling that I always hoped that there would be other large staff members on my shift with me because I'm a little guy. And some of these adolescents were huge. And um, not only did they not want to get hurt, I don't want to get hurt either. Um, So it pays to also attend not only to the impact of our practices on the kids, but to the impact of our practices on the adults who have to implement what we're having them do with kids. Absolutely. And even, um, like I'm thinking in in our school system, we don't, on a regular basis, use restraint but or seclusion, but just in terms of um, the emotional toll of working with an explosive student or a student with extremely challenging behavior, it's because, you know, as, as humans, we all carry around our own experience as well, and so we never know with staff members who's having uh, marital problems, whose family members are having health problems and what people are coming to school with. So they come into the building and they're working with these children who are very demanding, very difficult, and sometimes when the child's behavior becomes uh, severe enough that they're bringing this to the greater team in the school and saying we need help with this child, um, it's, it's worn them down to a degree where they're frustrated, they're almost burnt out, and to recognize, you know, it can be hard sometimes as an administrator. I mean, we focus a lot on what's happening for the student, and you know, we need to have sensitivity for the student. But I've learned also that we can't just, you know, and to be fair, a lot of times what's happening in the classroom is exacerbating the problems with the student, whether it's inflexibility in, in the routines and procedures in the classroom, whether it's just the classroom climate and culture. There are things that can exacerbate it, but for an adult who's a professional and who's maybe at their emotional limit of what they can handle right then to say, well, the problem is with your classroom or the problem is with you or, you know, there's a balance to be be kept in mind there where, um, you know, it's, it's a very stressful job and um, it's something that I've begun to, to be more cognizant of in my work with, with staff. I would never come out and say, you know, you're the reason this child is being um, being difficult or, or being challenging. It's because, you know, your classroom is just not amenable to them or you're doing these things that are setting them off. But um, definitely being aware that, you know, we know that there's an interplay of, of personalities in a lot of challenging situations but to, that it's really valid for some of these staff members to say, you know, I I just have a really hard time being empathetic toward this student. I have a hard time um, seeing it as a developmental concern rather than a willful behavior because 
it feels that way. <laughs> you know, I feel angry towards the student or I feel upset by their behavior. And, and those are all valid things that have to be addressed as well. But with the ALSEP, you can move from that person telling the story and, and airing those emotions to I understand that was really traumatic for you or I understand the impact this is having on your other students. Um, let's see if we can't analyze how we can best prevent these things from happening. And when you can get to that point, then the process can move forward and the ALSEP is a really good vehicle for doing that. Well, and it's an interesting balance, isn't it? Because this is what I love about a model in which we are being collaborative, but also in which the concerns of both parties are being taken into account. Yes. Um, teachers do well if they can in the same way Absolutely. that kids do well if they can. Absolutely. And if the the way one of the things I've been teaching my graduate students at Tufts University this semester, and it's a hard thing to to um, come to grips with, even though it's real and even though it's true, is that simple explanations for a student's challenging behavior rarely, if ever, tell the tale. It's always the characteristics of the child and various characteristics of the environment and the degree to which they mesh with each other, the degree to which there is compatibility or incompatibility, a good fit or a not-so-good fit. Right. And I find that um, while it's not so easy to tell a classroom teacher that there may be ways in which he or she is going about dealing with a behaviorally challenging student that may not be ideal, that's always balanced by the fact that that classroom teacher is presumably doing things in a way that is working for other students, and so this is not sort of an epidemic of um, <laughs> incompatibility, but that given this student's characteristics and given the way this classroom is usually run, that's not working very well for this student. It's always both. Um, and that is, number one, hard to sometimes to get our heads around, it's always both. But the fact that it's always both makes it easier for both parties to start working toward a mutually satisfactory outcome because it's, at least it's not all them. That's true. That's true. And, and that's a really good point, Ross, because it's, you know, depending on how my week's been going and what other things have been <laughs> happening, sometimes I find myself more patient or less patient with things that I see happening that are maybe not the way that I would exactly like them to see. And I think I appreciate the fact that you that you mentioned that sometimes it's important to um, to acknowledge that it's it's not epidemic. It's not all the students in the class that are experiencing these difficulties because some of these students, like you said, what's happening in the class is working and possibly working really well for probably the large majority of the students. And so that's a good reminder for me to to not discount those things that are happening in the class. Um, that's I appreciate that actually. I'm going to hang on to that one in my brain for a little while. Oh, cool, good. I mean, I am remembering. <laughs> I am remembering one teacher. I'm sure now deceased because when she was my <laughs> teacher many many years ago, uh, this has to have been about 45 years ago. 
um, she was nearly deceased then as well, <laughs> and and she was not she was not a good teacher. Yeah. Um, this was not somebody who, and I was a uh, pretty malleable student. I didn't have behavior problems. I was reasonably attentive. I was not hyperactive or impulsive, um, and I found this teacher as did most of my classmates, to not be the... T- you know, none of us wanted to be in her classroom, right? Right. And yet we, the ones who presumably had the skills to deal, to, to handle demands that were being placed upon our, us in a relatively adaptive way, we survived her. We didn't love her. Yeah, right. We didn't think she was that good. She was boring as all get out, deadly. <clears throat> um, but we survived, the students mm-hmm. who didn't survive were the ones who didn't have the skills to get past, were the ones who weren't able to get past the incompatibility between who this teacher was and what we needed as students. And but most of, needed, us, yeah. most of us did okay. The behaviorally yeah. challenging students, the ones who were lacking the skills, did not do okay. Right. So I don't want to discount the possibility that there are some teachers out there who truly are deadly, just like that particular one was 45 years ago. But I don't think that's the norm. I actually think that um, most teachers do fine by most of the kids in their classrooms. It's just that most classroom teachers, like most parents, don't necessarily receive training in understanding and handling kids with behavioral challenges. Right, and when we do then ask them... You know, there are a lot of demands placed on classroom teachers to deal with students with all kinds of academic needs as well and social-emotional needs, and now we're throwing, you know, these behavioral challenges at them as well and asking them to make even more adaptations. That's where I find that sometimes I need to be patient and sensitive and and uh, supportive as much as possible in terms of, you know, what, what are your concerns and, and making sure that they are completely validated and, and understood and addressed when we're coming up with the solutions. And the way that that works best is when the classroom teacher is part of the conversation. And that's where I sometimes struggle because um, often students will be sent to me or, or teachers will request that I consult with a student, you know, because of some behavior that's happening in the class that the teacher just cannot handle right then or they need a break from. So I'll begin the process, but until the teacher is actually an active part of the, the 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 conversation and expressing their concern, I can express it on their behalf, but it's not nearly as powerful as when they themselves can say the words to the student and the student can see from them that it's having an effect, and then coming up with the solution together. Because a lot of times a student will present a concern to me and I will dig for the information and and come up to something that I believe is understanding what's going on. But the teacher doesn't hear the conversation and they don't they don't see what went into it and they when I present the information or summarize the conversation to them, um, they feel like it's just me being a big mushy, psychobabbly type of um <laughs> airy fairy principal and, you know, I'm the kids are hoodwinking me and you know, they're walking all over me and, and telling me stories that make me think that I'm hearing what I want to hear, but they weren't in the room. So as much as possible, making sure that teachers, even if they're not ready to do the process on their own, making sure that they're part, like they're present during the conversation is really important because this, otherwise I, it doesn't carry the validity. This actually came up in Edmonton where people wanted to know who needed to be present 
for Plan B to occur. Right. And um, the point, of course, is that, yeah, you as the principal who's had a kid sent to her by a classroom teacher could do the empathy steps so that you had a bit of a sense of what the kid's concern or perspective was. Yeah. But much more powerful for the classroom teacher who sent the kid to you to hear it, not only for the teacher to hear it, but for the teacher to see you doing it so that there's some hope that the teacher will someday be doing it instead of you. Just as (laughs) powerful, you know what I'm saying? But just as powerful, of course, for the um, kid to hear the teacher's concerns. Mm -hmm. Now now we're actually communicating. Now, Now we're actually solving a problem collaboratively without you be, being what I've come to call the plan B go-to guy. Right. Um, you know, it's it's good that we've moved from plan A to plan B in many buildings, but in the same way that having a plan A go-to guy didn't work, we don't want to have a plan B go-to guy either. <laughs> yeah. You know, we want, we want people to do this in their classrooms. Yeah. Well, I've had teachers that are involved with our action research project now who are maybe just starting out with the process asking me, you know, they'll say, during my prep, um, I'm going to be meeting with this student. Can you sit in with us? And, you know, sometimes they want me to start the conversation and then they kind of take over or ask questions as we go through the digging information step. Or sometimes, you know, they want to start it off and, and if they get stuck, then I'll kind of, you know, add a, you know bring up a couple more questions or add, ask some clarifying questions just to keep the process moving. And um, so that's been great. And there are, about, there are other teachers who aren't part of the action research project, but we discuss a student during our school-based team, and the teacher goes, yeah, I'll, I'll go and, you know, start the conversation, and they've either, um, you know, I've done a couple presentations in staff meetings about the process, or teachers have seen me do it, or they've gone to the website and watched some of the videos, and they're ready to try it on their own, and I've had really good feedback um, so far this year in the few months that we've been back in school, and um, having teachers who really haven't tried the process before, have some conversations with kids, and they've just gone, oh, my goodness, I had no idea that that's how the student was feeling. I thought they just didn't care about school, or I thought they just, you know, didn't like me, or, you know, I thought they were just impulsive, and instead they're finding out all these underlying things, and the plans that they're putting into place are, are like, literally not immediately having an effect. I'm not going to say that they're immediately solving the problems because we know that that doesn't happen, but they're seeing at least a willingness for the student to participate in the plan. They're seeing some movement forward in addressing those problems because the student has been part of the solution. And it's making a huge difference for them. And, of course, they've been part of the solution, too, so it's not just you being the plan B go-to guy, which is perfect. Absolutely. Quick question for you. Yeah. Go ahead. No, keep going. I was just going to say um, that a lot of uh, a lot of times the teachers just kind of doing it on their own because they you know they have been given some materials and they're like you know what let's give this a spin and just like what could it hurt and um, yeah it's actually once I think once teachers have done it once with a student and have seen some positive results it just gives them that much more motivation to to get better at it to learn more about it to do it with more students and it kind of snowballs from there. And our biggest goal for 2013 is to greatly expand the videos on the Lives in the Balance website so that people can see way, way, way more examples of what Plan B looks like than are up there right right now. I get 
get an enormous amount of positive feedback on the videos that are there. But um, I want people to keep coming back because I want to keep posting new videos of Plan B being done Great. on the Lives in the Balance website so that people can have as many examples to draw from as possible. Um, I was talking with the assistant, with, not the assistant, yeah, the assistant principal of a high school, um, and he was, uh, they've been dabbling in collaborative problem solving a little bit, and, um, but he was saying, you know, we don't have tons of behavior problems in our building. He said, we, and I'm, I've given up hope of Nina today, we're only about 15 <laughs> okay. minutes away from the program ending, and apparently the situation she had going on in her school was taking a lot longer to deal with. Uh, of course, she'll call in if she can, but this is, a, this is an assistant principal in a high school who was saying, we, we have kids who, like, um, skip class or kids who are failing their classes right. or uh, kids who are not coming to school, but we don't have big behavior problems. And um, surprisingly, uh, it took uh, more effort than I thought it would to convince him that solving problems collaboratively is just as crucial for those unsolved problems as it is for students who, whose unsolved problems lead to challenging behaviors. Because right. unsolved problems don't have to lead to challenging behaviors per se. They can lead to assignments not being done or classes not being gone to or school not being come to. Um, right. Do you all find that you're beginning to use Plan B on things other than problems that set in motion challenging behavior? Absolutely. We um, Just to give you a couple of examples, um, one of my intermediate teachers was uh, concerned about a student who, kind of what you were just talking about, seems very just unmotivated in school, just sits there and doesn't do anything, doesn't return any homework, um, barely engages in class, but, you know, generally, you know, is sociable with friends on the playground and doesn't seem to have any... Uh, intellectual concerns just doesn't seem to want to do any work and so the prevailing theory was that he was just lazy just didn't care just couldn't be bothered just was a lump and so the teacher decided to sit down with the student and say you know look I've noticed that whenever it comes down to work time you just kind of stop and you just don't do anything what's up and I wasn't there for the entire conversation but uh, the teacher emailed me the um, the, the plans that he came up with, and it turned you know it turns out that the student was actually highly anxious in school, quite a perfectionist, was concerned about being embarrassed in class by giving being asked to answer something that he wasn't prepared for, and he didn't present as anxious, he didn't present as as easily embarrassed, um, he just seemed unmotivated, and so he and his teacher came up with some ideas for lowering his anxiety, for presenting him with kind of the the work for the week on Monday so he could kind of see what he was going to have coming up and kind of be prepared. Um, they decided that he would only be called on in class when he had his hand up. The teacher wouldn't randomly call on him without his hand up because that was extremely um, enervating for the student. And uh, just a few simple things like that. And uh, right a, like within a week, the teacher was already seeing the student participating more, making an effort to do more work, even coming to school more regularly. This is a student who um, his mom leaves for work quite early in the morning and he's left to get himself to, to school and oftentimes he wasn't rolling in till noon. Um, 
and he's actually been getting up and coming to school more often. So all around it's made a big difference. And it wasn't challenging. He wasn't disruptive to the class. He wasn't, um, you know, swearing or throwing things or, or being explosive. He was just the teacher was worried about him because he wasn't being successful in school. And it made a big difference for him. This is why I like talking about the spectrum of looking bad. <laughs> and that there's Absolutely. lots of different ways that a student's lots of different behaviors that a student could be exhibiting to let us know that he's having a problem and it doesn't have to be that he's screaming and swearing and hitting and kicking and destroying or skipping school or skipping class. Yeah. It could be that he's withdrawn or um sulking or pouting or just plain not doing well, mm-hmm. we don't want to only have extreme behavior communicating to us that a kid is needing to be better understood and needs us to do some further exploring about what's getting in his way. Um, there's lots of behaviors that are not even remotely extreme that communicate the exact same thing. I do find in a lot of buildings that the students that they initially want the most help with is the ones who are exhibiting extreme behaviors because they're the ones who are disrupting the classroom process. They're the ones who are have a more dangerous feel to them. Right. But um, it is very typical, in my experience, in buildings that have been applying collaborative problem solving for a while to their behaviorally challenging students to start saying to themselves, now, well, why wouldn't we be doing this exact, given the ingredients that we're talking about here, um, understanding what's getting in a student's way. For me, this is just good education. This is just good Mm -hmm. teaching. Understanding what's getting in the way of a student meeting our expectations, um, collaborating with the student on solutions that will be realistic and mutually satisfactory Uh, I don't have a good answer for why we wouldn't be doing this with every student in the building. In fact, I think that we should be. I just understand that in the beginning, we're usually applying it to the students who are most disruptive and who we think are most dangerous. Right. And what I find is is often if um, if people are interested in learning about the process or if they've heard good things from other people, then they may want to try the process for the first time on a student who is somewhat less challenging because what I found is that the underlying skills or issues tend to be a bit less complex and the plans that need to be made can be a bit simpler and you often will see results a bit quicker. Mm-hmm. Um, so it can actually give people uh, a, a quite a sense of success, although they have to be constantly given the caveat that it's not this easy with everybody. <laughs> it doesn't. It's not an instant fix. but. Honestly, if they can witness the, the process with a student who's not, you know, if they're if they're not looking that bad, then it gives them some confidence, and it's not. Um, it can be encouraging, I guess is what I'm saying. It can give them yeah. a sense of like, hey, this is actually a process. And then when they do run up against a student whose behavior is more challenging, then they've got the tools to start working with them rather than starting from scratch. Yes, although I will say, and I'm sure you'll agree with this, there are kids who are not acting up whose unsolved problems 
are nonetheless more complex than it might initially seem. It's just that they are not um, acting on those concerns and those problems in ways that are extreme. That's true, yeah. Um, no, I would agree with uh, that. I, I know what, what, what and this is the interesting thing. This came up in Edmonton as well. Um, when we have a kid who's not so challenged, when we're trying to solve problems with a kid who is challenging, behaviorally challenging, the reason for doing plan B is obvious. Well, at least one of the reasons. And that is that if you do plan A, you're gonna, the kid's going to blow up on you. You're going to see some of the kid's worst behavior okay. when you're doing plan A. So that's one really good reason to do Plan B. There are others, of course, but that's one. With, with less challenging, what's that? It's self-preservation. <laughs> self-preservation. Um, with kids who are not behaviorally challenging, sometimes we get away with doing Plan A, and I have found that this sometimes happens. This is this is adults not really feeling need to explore what's getting in the kid's way and not Mm -hmm. really gathering that information and plunging forward with what I call uninformed solutions. And the the interesting thing is that often doesn't cause challenging behavior in a kid who's not behaviorally challenging. Um, On the other hand, it still doesn't work. And that's because I find that it's just as important to gather information from a not-so-challenging student about what's getting in their way. Otherwise, we don't really know what's getting in the kid's way, in which, ca- in which case we are at risk for running forward with uninformed solutions. But I also find that if we don't collaborate with the kid on the solution, and this is something I find that we do sometimes, we perhaps especially in education, but probably all over, because we are trained that if there's this problem, you apply this intervention. It's not an uncommon thing for people to be trained in. Right. Then when they have a kid who has that problem, they apply a rote solution. In many instances, that rote solution isn't tailored to this kid. The kid was not a participant in helping craft the plan of action, and the solution doesn't work because we didn't have a teammate, the kid. What do you think? No, I I think you're right, and pardon me. And, um, you know, I think the the trap is that sometimes when we use Plan A with students who are perhaps demonstrating milder misbehavior or it's infrequent and we just figure – you know, this isn't a plan B, this isn't a, a lost-at-school type student, so I'm just going to, you know, yank out my code of conduct, read them the riot act, give them a consequence, and it'll be better. Um, I think we're what we can fall into the trap of is it may be successful in the short term. You know, like a, say um, a student is uh, gets in a physical conflict on the playground, but it's the first time it's ever happened, they don't generally have that problem, um, so I just say, oh, you're not being safe on the playground, you're going to, you know, it's against the rules, you're sitting out for two recesses, boom, that's it. And after that happens, the child doesn't have another fight for whatever amount of time. 
like you said, it's an uninformed consequence. It doesn't tell me what's simmering between those two students or what happened at all or or what was underlying the problem or whether it's likely to happen again. And I might I'm taking a chance. I'm really rolling the dice if I if I just use plan A and assign a consequence without being informed because um it there could be more to it and without I don't want to roll the dice in my school. I've got enough <laughs> uncertainty in my days and weeks and years without um taking chances on things that I could make certain. So it's it's always worth the time and it may not be as instantly urgent and and uh needing to be done right that second, but it's definitely the type of thing that you need to make sure that um you've done your due diligence with that student and afforded them the same level of consideration and empathy that you would any other student. Well, and this is why I found our our discussion on the last educators panel to be so interesting. Um, mm-hmm. Because uh, I, I think the title of the program was uh, "Is Are There Still Kids Who You Would Use Traditional School Discipline Within the Building?" And I, Tom, our one of our other. Uh, educators panel members I know was quite stressed out that day and has been stressed out about some new policies that he's been having to live with in his school system. Um, but I, I found it to be a very interesting discussion, namely that um, for the sake of efficiency, even in especially in kids who aren't typically behaviorally challenging, Plan A might still make sense because we can't do Plan B with everybody. And of course, in an ideal world, we do want to be doing Plan B with everybody. We do yeah. want to find out what's going on with a kid, even one who isn't typically behaviorally challenging. Uh, it came up in Edmonton over the last three days as well. Why would we want to deprive a not-so-challenging student of the same benefits um, of Plan B and the same information gathering that we would one with behavioral challenges, um, which seems to be kind of what you're saying right now. We, w- we wouldn't want to deprive those students of Plan B. Right. Because if, if nothing else, we're modeling mature, rational, logical problem solving, which is a skill that we want to teach all of our students. Well, and also that even reasonably well-behaved kids still have stuff going on, as you, as you said, with regard to teachers in the beginning of the program. If, a, if, a, if one of our best teachers has something going on in his or her personal life, mm-hmm. um, you know, the stuff that goes on in everybody's personal life, and they're having a bad day, I think we still want to know. Absolutely. If a student who's normally well-behaved has a, a bad episode, I think we want to know. Exactly. And we can't just write it off as, oh, they're having a bad day. I can just give them a detention and they'll be fine. We owe them. If we have the skills, then we owe them. Just like, you know, with a, a you've got two students that are, I'm going to go back to math. You have two students who are struggling with subtraction. One of them you know has a learning disability and one doesn't. So the one that has a learning disability, you're going to give some adaptations. You're going to reteach using manipulatives. You're going to provide an option for an alternate assessment. The other students, you're just going to say, here's some homework, take it home and bring it back next week. Is that fair? Is that appropriate? 
why wouldn't you afford you have the skills to teach that student they deserve the benefit of your expertise well once again we can't help but agree with each other (laughs) (laughs) it's true it's true now and here's what we've proven today you and i can do this program alone if we need to we we don't know what took tom ambrose away from the program today and we don't know what was going on in nina's school that she had to deal with but isn't it nice to know that if we really have to you and i can do this program without them that is good to know and i did have a little lineup of people outside my door and i just kept waving them away going i'll come and see you later (laughs) now you can see them Carol, thanks now again for go. doing this today. I hope you have a nice holiday. I did. Always and we'll talk to you next to month. You. Thank you very much, Russ. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And I will be back, of course, next week with another edition of Helping Behaviorally Challenging Students. Talk to you then.